Well, how are you feeling today? I mean, really, how, how are you feeling? No one's going to say anything, are they? Are you aware of your emotional state? Some people are so aware of their emotions that they are like a finely tuned scientific instrument or a thermometer. They can tell you their emotional temperature at any given moment. Other people are, are dimly aware that they may be feeling something, but they will only figure out what it was a few days later. Howard Gardner is a developmental psychologist at Harvard University. He claims that there are multiple intelligences, multiple forms of intelligence, not just some of the academic ones that we think of, but uh, others too. And he describes something that he calls intrapersonal intelligence, intrapersonal. That's inside you. Someone with a high intrapersonal intelligence has the ability to understand themselves. Uh, they can appreciate their own feelings, fears, motivations. People with good intrapersonal intelligence are skilled at self-reflection and they know themselves very well. They're in touch with who they are. Uh, they know, they sense what they need and they can tell what's going on in their own heart. Others of us, and I'm one of these, have a pretty low intrapersonal intelligence and we need help to understand what's going on in our head. I wonder how important you see your emotions as being. Have you given any thought to how they influence your decisions and your thoughts? Many actions in this world, good or bad, have been driven by unexamined, raw passion. What about you? How are your emotions affecting you at the moment? And what do you do about emotions? What I mean is this, God has made us emotional beings. The good creator gave us our emotions for a purpose. It's not an accident that you're an emotional person. We're not robots made out of meat. And so our emotions are tremendously important. But here's the thing. Emotions are a good servant, but a bad master. A good servant, but a bad master. If you're ruled by your emotions, you can be driven into despair, misery, certainly depression. Or at the other end of the spectrum, you could be so driven by your giddy excitement that you go and make a terrible decision. Now, those are people who are just ruled by emotions. Others just can't handle emotions, so they, they stuff them. They kind of put them in a box and squeeze them down, suppressing, maybe even denying emotion. In previous generations in this country, we used to talk, having a, talk about having a stiff upper lip. So it was a kind of, you know... Buttoned down, nothing's getting through. We're not going to, going to quaver and tremble with emotion. But that's not the way to live. Emotions are important according to the Bible. And if we're going to live well in God's world, we need to grow in emotional wisdom. This is where we turn to the book of Proverbs again. Proverbs teaches us how to live well in God's world. It deals with the small change of life, uh, not the big checks. It deals with the nitty gritty. Proverbs takes us to those areas of our lives where we don't have a rule book. And because 98% of your life is made up of small decisions that are not black and white, Proverbs is where we look to for wisdom in how to live well. How do we acquire the skill of living? The answer is wisdom. And over the summer, we've been looking about wisdom. In, we've looked at some topics like friendship, in speech, our words, and in listening, how we receive words. And today we're thinking about emotions. 
emotional wisdom because this is another theme in Proverbs. So please do turn to your handouts and as you can see we've selected a range of different Proverbs from around the book on this topic for the teaching today. And for those of you who've been following along with the series, because uh, you've been here this summer or, or you've been tuning in online, I'm sure you've noticed by now that every time we open a topic in Proverbs, it's like we open a door and as we go through that door, we realize we're in a corridor that has a lot more doors on it. So we never exhaust these topics. Um, there's lots more we could say about emotions today. I, I know that, and I feel we're just scratching the surface. But at least we're making a start. And remember that one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century, Billy Graham, at one stage of his life resolved that he would read one chapter of Proverbs every single day each month, because Proverbs has 31 chapters. And he read it on rotation over and over and over again because he wanted to become a profound person. He wanted to be wise. So let's listen to the wisdom of Proverbs today. I'll read them and speak about them as we go through. On the left-hand side of the sheet, uh, firstly, whole people, whole people. Proverbs 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. What are these Proverbs saying? They're saying that we are whole people. We're integrated. Our emotional well-being is completely connected to our physical health. The emotional state of envy, being deeply envious, it says here, actually can rot your bones. So what's going on in your, in your emotions can affect you physically and vice versa. A cheerful heart, it says, and a heart here is the center of the person, not the actual pumping muscle that's putting blood around your body. A cheerful heart is actually good medicine. If you have a cheerful heart, it does your body good. But a crushed spirit, that's a terrible thought, dries up the bones. And perhaps you've experienced that at some point in your life, or maybe right now. If, you, if your spirit is crushed, it's as if your, your bones are dry, you're weak, aching. You're sapped of strength. It's as if you can barely get out of bed, you've got no energy, because your spirit is crushed. In other words, you are a complicated person. A complex being with a mind, a will, a spirit, body and emotions all integrated and connected together and you know what we barely understand ourselves do we we can put a man or a woman on the moon but we barely understand ourselves now one thing we learn from this that we're a whole person is that wisdom will never reduce a problem to a simple cause or a single cause usually Multiple different aspects of your nature are involved if you have a problem. So we've got to be beware of an over-specialization that will just look at one aspect of a person but ignore the rest. You know, in this church we have a, a high number of doctors. We also have at least one psychologist. We've got a couple of pastors. We've got people who work in the social work world. But if we only looked at one angle of a person's life, we may miss the whole person and what's really going on. Someone may be suffering from uh, an intense migraine. It splits their head in half. It feels like one half of their, it can feel like a stroke. 
But actually, the roots of the migraine are in stress that might be brought on by financial pressure or by hormonal changes in their body. So just looking at the migraine on its own doesn't address it. Someone may be struggling with depression, but the cause of the depression can have multiple roots because we're a whole person. Now, the 16th and the 17th century in this country saw a, a flowering of a theology among, among Christians uh, that was called the, the Puritan movement. Now, the Puritans get a bad rap in today's culture, but some of them did the most sophisticated thinking and analysis of pastoral problems that has ever been done in the Christian church, English Puritans. One of them was a man named Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks described eight varieties of discouragement. He says, yeah, you can be discouraged, but look closely at it. There's eight different kinds. And he applied this uh, thinking to people who suffer from what we would call burnout, as well as anxiety, grief, and disappointment. Thomas Brooks distinguished between discouragement that's brought on by false expectations. Now, sometimes your expectations are just too high. You're, you're bound to be discouraged. Other times, uh, uh, discouragement is brought on by a man-pleasing spirit. We're so keen to people-please that we become discouraged. Discouragement can be brought on by self-righteousness, by coveting things, wanting other things too much that then we're discouraged. We don't get them. By getting our Bible truth twisted or by a simple lack of self-discipline. You see, there can be multiple causes even for being discouraged. Another great Puritan was a man called Richard Baxter. who wrote one of the biggest and best books on pastoral care. And he studied depression. And he concluded that there were four main potential causes of depression, but under them, many, many varieties. Now, the first cause that he identified was, was the physiology, the body. Physiological elements can make you depressed. Uh, hormonal change. Uh, aspects of your physical health. If you're struggling with health, it can lead you to depression. At uh, the stage of your life, just the makeup of your body, physiology. Secondly, temperament. Some people are just wired up in terms of their makeup, their family background, or their culture to be more likely, more inclined to depression. Thirdly, sin. Yeah. Baxter said that sin leads to depression because the effects of guilt on the conscience can lead to us being depressed. And fourthly, he said that another cause of, demonic act, of, of uh, depression, potential cause, was demonic activity, the activity of spirits who are opposed to God. You see, the Bible teaches that there's an unseen realm and an unseen conflict uh, between the devil and his angels and Jesus Christ and his church. And the devil, we know, hates a happy Christian. He hates a happy Christian and he wants to bring you down. He's called, in some places, the accuser. In other places, the father of lies. And the Puritans believed this. And they said, you know, sometimes a Christian can be assaulted by spiritual forces that are like fiery darts being thrown into you. And you need all the armor you can get just to stand firm. You can be oppressed. But here's the thing. Because we're a whole person, no one of these causes is probably in operation at any given moment. It may well be a mixture of your temperament, your physiology, sin, demonic activity. And they can all be intertwined. Now, 
we're talking about depression. Depression is so common in the Western world now that psychologist Martin Seligman referred to it as the common cold of mental illness. Some other psychologists have reckoned that at least 10% of all adults will become seriously depressed at some point during their lives. At least 10% will become seriously depressed. And as Christians, we're not exempt from the, the ills and troubles that are common to man. So that's part of our reality. But the scriptures urge us not just to let it lie there. Don't just accept it. And so if you're experiencing dry bones, then you're not alone here. If you feel trapped in despair, or you feel you're in a dark cave, uh, you don't know the way out, you don't even want to find the way out, then can I say we are here for you as a church. We don't have a magic bullet to take away all your ills, but we can walk with you. We can stand alongside you. We can hold your hand. We can uh, pray with you and offer you some counsel, but it will only be counsel after much listening because we don't just want to slap on a quick memory verse and think that that'll sort it. We, we do know the heaviness of a crushed spirit. As this text says here, the third uh, verse on our, our reading, the human spirit can endure in sickness, bodily sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? That's the heaviest thing. So summary of the first point, we're whole people. Uh, we're, we're a complicated mixture of things. Therefore, our emotions are important. We should uh, seek wisdom to do with emotion from the Bible, wisdom for ourselves, and wisdom for one another. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at four of the big emotions. I'm not calling them the big four, but you know, we, we all experience these. And two of them are, are really uh, often very negative, and two are really positive and we need them. And I want to look at these four. They are anxiety, anger, joy, and hope. Anxiety, anger, joy, and hope. Firstly, anxiety. Have a look at the second heading, Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Now, I've been in pastoral leadership of churches uh, since the tender age of 28, so tw 20 years ago, I first was appointed as an elder in a church. And I have to say that, uh, from my observation, if depression is the common cold of mental illness, then anxiety is, is an e epidemic, a recent epidemic. 20 years ago, uh, talking about anxiety in church circles was fairly scarce. Now it is a commonplace. And I don't say that in judgment. I say it as, as, as a careful observation. Anxiety is sweeping through our culture and, and therefore it sweeps through our churches. Many of us are deeply affected by it. We, we are. And I hope you're honest enough to admit it, if that's you. And I don't think we, we really fully understand it. Look at that proverb again. Uh, anxiety weighs down the heart but a kind word cheers it up. Now, Bruce Waltke is a leading Old Testament scholar. He's, he's an expert, world expert on Proverbs. And he says that the Hebrew word, which is translated anxiety here, 
refers to the emotional distress caused when something vital to your life is threatened. I'll say it again. Anxiety in the Hebrew language is the emotional distress that's caused when something vital to your life is threatened. Something in your life is threatened. You feel that it's vital to you and it causes you emotional distress. And often this is just subconscious. You don't really understand what's going on. So when we're dealing with anxiety in ourselves or in other people, brothers and sisters, we need to slow down and think carefully. I have found that expressing the anxiety helps. If you can get the person to just to talk about it, or if you can share it yourself with somebody else, then talking alone starts to help and heal. And for some of us, writing will help. Perhaps getting a piece of paper or a journal and just writing down what's going on starts that process of seeing the anxiety for what it is. Here is here's a suggested five-stage process. And, and this, is, this is simple, but you can take this and, and do with it what you will. Firstly, admit that you're distressed. Admit it and describe the feelings. Secondly, start to poke around. What is the thing in my life that's being threatened? It's causing the anxiety. Thirdly, what is my heart attitude towards that thing? That thing that's being threatened, why is it so important to me? What is my heart saying about it? Fourthly, what truths from the, the Bible, from the gospel, the good news, can I take and apply to this situation? And then fifthly, pray with someone. Pray with someone. Admit your distress, describe the feelings. Identify what's the thing in my life that's being threatened. Ask, what's the heart attitude in my heart towards that thing? What truths can I apply and pray? And now, this is not a quick fix, by the way. Anxiety can, it comes and goes like the weather. And there can be seasons in life where you're going through a storm. And they might go on for months. A friend of mine was a, a Christian missionary in Japan for 20 years. He had a two-year period where he and his wife called it the years of tears. Two years of tears. You see, we can never get rid of anxiety completely on this side of heaven. And in some contexts, it is a proper response. The Apostle Paul said he was anxious for all the churches, and he wasn't saying sorry for that. He was right to be anxious. But if anxiety grows and becomes crippling, then it's got to be dealt with. And it may be that it's growing out of an inordinate love for something. You're loving something too much, relying on something too much that you need to uh, free yourself from. Now notice a really important lesson on this proverb. We shouldn't try and deal with anxiety on our own. A kind word cheers up the heart. We need a kind word from somebody else. And this word kind, in the Hebrew language, is actually the word good. A good word. And that good refers to what's beneficial for life. What creates life. What promotes life. What causes life to flourish. This is what God said when he created the world. Remember? He looked at it and after every day he said, this is good. And when God had finished his creation, he said, this is very good. And so we need to give good words to one another. Such a word can be simply a kindness. 
Or it might be an encouragement, a thoughtful encouragement. Or it may be an insight. We should be slow to give advice, actually, but quick to give good words. Because the anxious person, especially if they're crippled by it, they need to regain a proper perspective on life. And they can't do it alone. They need to renew their confidence in God. Because their confidence has been shot and stripped from them and taken away. And above all, they need to know they are not alone. So let me say it again. If you're a person here who is, who is under deep anxiety, I, I know what it feels like. Let me say you are not alone. We want to bless each other as a church and be a real community, not just one that's on Facebook. So reach out. A couple of questions. What helps you the most when you're anxious? And are you making the best use of the resources God has given you to deal with it? Anxiety. Second big emotion also begins with A, and it's anger. Anger. Now, anger may look like the opposite of anxiety, but you know, often it's closely related. Sometimes a person who is raging about something and looks really fierce, underneath that, they're deeply anxious. A professor who taught pastoral counseling at my seminary uh, related a story one day to the class about a businessman who he was counselling for anger problems. I suppose he was giving him anger management. And one day the man arrived at the session, the therapy session, in remarkably good spirits. Great, the professor thought. Finally, we're making some progress. So he said, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, the man replied. As I was driving here, in my new car, somebody cut me up on the road. I was so angry, I drove my car into them. I feel fantastic. <laughs> now, you may not quite be there, and you may be the kind of person who is more passive-aggressive. You know, you never uh, shout or, or lose your cool, but underneath you're seething with rage, and it comes through in cold, harsh assessments and judgmental spirit towards other people. But you know what? We all struggle with anger, whether you've got a short fuse and you're fiery, or whether you've got a long fuse and you're, you're cold. And you know what? I think anger, uh, from observing the media, and especially social media, anger is a growing problem in our culture. So it's right that we should spend some time looking at it. Look at the sheet, Proverbs 29, 22. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. The first thing we learn about anger here is that it is dangerous. It's dangerous. As Frank preached a couple of weeks ago from the book of Jonah, how you spell anger is only one letter away from danger. Just the letter D is all that separates them. It says here that an angry person stirs up conflict. How many bitter feuds and broken relationships and acts of violence come from the fact that someone just didn't control their temper? No other emotion has led to so many dead bodies. More broadly, it says in the second half of the verse that the hot-tempered person commits many sins. So again, the power of anger is that it gives us energy. Anger has this way of creating immense energy. Some of you here probably get, when you get angry, you clean the house. Or you do the dishes and you find it gives you such power. You were feeling tired before, but you were so raging, you got the house sorted. Now that energy of anger can be used for good in righteous anger, but more often we misdirect it into sin with devastating consequences. The next verse, chapter 19, 
19 says, a hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them and you'll have to do it again. Now that's an interesting proverb, isn't it? The first part means that anger tends to carry its own consequences. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. You know, if you're hot-tempered, if you lose it, if you habitually lose control of your temper, you will find that there are natural consequences. Uh, you blew up at someone, now that person is much less likely to trust you. They might even steer well clear of you. It tends to harm your friendships. You may find over time you actually have no friends. Someone who is hot-tempered, we, we find ourselves distrusting them. Can we, can we rely on their judgment? It's not cool-headed here. You know, sinful anger... Dense relationships, like driving a car into some a car, dents the side of it. Other people become wary of you. They don't know when you're going to blow up again. Now, worse than that, the second half of this verse teaches that people prone to anger are actually their own worst enemy. It says, rescue them, and you will have to do it again. They have a tendency to keep on losing their temper and getting into more and more trouble. So other people then learn to stay away from them. Now the advice of Proverbs is to find ways to deal with your anger so that it doesn't get out of control. Uh, the next verse says this, Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Fools give full vent. They, they, they just let go, but the wise person actually brings calm now the bible doesn't teach us that we ought to be a sort of a, a seeker zen buddhism type calmness where the problems of the world don't affect us in fact the bible teaches there's, there's such a thing as good anger righteous anger god is angry but he never loses it. his temper he never sins the next verse there chapter 22 14 is an example of it the mouth of an adulterous woman is a deep pit it's full of danger. And a man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. So somebody can be underneath God's anger and fall into temptation and disgrace. And God hasn't sinned. And there are things in this world we should be angry about, shouldn't we? We should be angry about human trafficking. It should touch us deeply. We should be raging about human trafficking and, and sexual slavery. Anger actually drives much of the good that happens in the charity and NGO sectors. But more often than not, our anger turns to be unrighteous and we get angry about the wrong things, angry about ourselves, and then we sin. So let me ask a question. In what ways can you see that anger has brought danger and bad consequences into your life? How can you address it in community? Anxiety and anger. Now, the next two emotions, we're looking at the positive side. And these two are vital if we're going to live well. They're also an important part of the medicine that God gives us to help us with our anxiety and to help us with our anger. But we will need to seek these things and cultivate them. They are joy and hope. Uh, on the other side of the sheet there, joy. Chapter 15, verse 30. Light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart and good news gives health to the bones. Uh, light in somebody's eyes. You ever looked in someone's eyes and seen 
they're kind of dead and dark and discouraged. You know there's a sadness in there. It's coming through the eyes. And then the flip side of that is somebody whose eyes are sparkling. We talk about sparkling or, or their eyes are shining, gleaming, brightening. And this person in this proverb is a friend who comes and there's something radiant about them. There's a lightness. There's a joy shining out of them because they're bringing good news, encouraging news. They're a messenger. Second half says, the good news that they bring gives health to your bones. And so what do we learn here? How important relationships are for a life of joy. How important relationships are. And I know the temptation when you've been hurt by somebody is to pull back and become an island. But as we've said here before many times, if you cut the nerve to pain, you cut the nerve to love. If you cut the nerve to pain in your heart and say, no one's going to hurt me again, you also cut the nerve to love, and love becomes impossible. You've got to be open to these kind of important relationships where someone can come and speak to you, and they will be able to give you health to your bones. I remember many years ago, some years ago in this, we were at this church, it was quite a few years ago, and uh, we learned of a, a mistake that had been made uh, in regard to our finances to do with the uh, declaration of taxes and the inland revenue and so on and so forth. An honest mistake had been made between us and the, an accountant and between the church treasurer and it meant that we were potentially tens of thousands of pounds in, in trouble, in debt and we didn't have anything to pay it. And I remember as I, I, I got the news from our, our church treasurer over the phone I remember where, even where I was, I was on Deansgate in the middle of the city, and it was as if all the strength drained out of me. And I, I, my, my bones felt weak. And I, I actually panicked. I wasn't a great example of faith at that point. I was thinking, what are we going to do? You know, we've got a mortgage, children, and bills to pay. How are we going to get through this? I, I actually had no idea. And it was looming, it, was, it became so big. We went to see one of our kids in a play that evening. I didn't see a single thing of that play. I was sitting there it, it, as if I was in the dark because my soul was so overwhelmed. And I reached out to a good friend who was actually a, in his working life an accountant and he gave some financial advice, which was helpful. But then he sent me a single text message on my phone uh, that I will never forget. Because all he said was this, Mike, Remember the love of God. Remember the love of God. Now that put my problems into a, the right perspective. I still didn't know what we were going to do about it. But now I saw the love of God in my, my heart, my mind's eye. I saw the love of God that took Jesus Christ on a journey from heaven to earth where he adopted our flesh, became one of us and lived the life we should have lived. And then after living that perfect life, he was falsely condemned and accused and died the death that we deserved. He faced the anger and wrath of God. He endured it all for the joy set before him and he rose from death and he sets his love upon us. That's how much... Jesus loves you, Christian friend. So in whatever circumstance you are in, you must say, or hear somebody saying to you, 
Remember the love of God. And that gave health to my bones. You see, what did he do? He took some part of the good news, just a little part, and he just applied it to my heart at just the right moment. And in God's timing, in God's spirit, gave health to the bones. So here's the other side of this coin. Look at the next proverb. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word? You see, how do you speak words to others that bring them joy? Because that will make you happy. An apt reply, it's the appropriate reply. It's the thing that's just right for the moment. And the timely word is well-timed. Not just blasting them with all the advice you can think of at that moment, but taking the time to think about it, pray with them, and then speak an apt and timely word. That will help them, and it will actually bring joy to you. Let's not be so wrapped up in our own problems that we can't listen and speak to others. Finally, hope. Hope. Look at uh, chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now at the core of your being, at the core of who you are, is not just a bunch of swirling emotions, but a collection of hopes. We are hope-based creatures. God has made us like that. We're motivated and driven in the deepest place by what we're hoping for. And so if we're going to live well and wisely in God's world, we will need to identify what are my greatest hopes and see how they influence us and perhaps how they control us and start to bring them into the light of God's word. Because it says here, hope that is deferred, delayed, always put off, you never get there, it's always out of reach. That kind of hope makes us sick at the heart. But longing that is fulfilled is a tree of life. Now, have you ever looked at your heart and prayed for help? Lord, help me to discern what I'm hoping in. What am I putting my hope in today? Because you will find, if you do that, that you have already set yourself up for constant heart sickness. You've set yourself up to fail. We have a hope that We'll we'll be this kind of person. But if you look at it seriously, you're never going to be that. You're living in a dream. Whatever your culture says, we can't be whoever we want to be. I would love to play in in attack for Manchester City and score 30 goals a season. I I really would love it. But you know what? I'm never going to be who I want to be. I'll have to leave that to Sergio Aguero. What are you hoping in? Let's get real about it. You know, ultimately, we, our hopes will shape all the rest of the things we've talked about. The hopes are what are really influencing the anxiety. The hope or the thwarted hope is what's making us so angry. And we will need to, to get grip of, a grip on our hopes if we are to find joy. How do we tie all these emotions together? I want to just finish this sermon where Rupert began the meeting which, with a, a short reading from Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is an amazing psalm. It's a solid believer, somebody who was a, a, a worship leader, we might say, someone who was uh, a leader in the, in the believing community in Israel. But he confesses here that he's deeply down. But listen to what he says. Uh, 
As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. He says, that's what I used to be like. And then he says this, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. Notice this person is not yet out of the woods. He's not back leading the procession and, and playing the guitar and leading shouts of joy and thanksgiving. He's still downcast. He's still deep in the dumps, but he's talking to himself. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He, he's asking, what, what, what am I hoping in here? Because I need to put my hope in God. And I will praise him, my saviour and my God. So two big takeaways from this sermon. Are you ready? If we're going to live wisely and learn emotional wisdom, you need to learn how to talk to yourself. <laughs> do you ever talk to yourself? Of course, we think people who do that are crazy. This psalmist learns how to talk to himself. He says, why are you so downcast, my soul? We need to learn to preach to ourselves. And we need to learn to talk to each other. You notice how in every one of these Proverbs, somebody from outside comes in and gives a good word. A kind word cheers up the heart. The wise bring calm. The messenger's eyes are light and they bring good news. The person finds joy through the apt reply. You know, if we want to have our longings fulfilled, we need to stop having our hopes deferred. And that will take some work in our souls. And I pray that God will give us great emotional wisdom. Shall we pray?